Good morning, Exchange. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 30 today. So if you want to turn there, some really, really exciting stuff like oil, incense, censuses, and the such. So we are going to have our work cut out for us today. I don't know, since, since I, since I, since this is, I don't know the plural of that, but uh, we'll get there. Um, so uh, I would say as we continue on in our uh, series in Exodus, uh, you know, one of the things that we're committed to here at Exchange is going through Scripture and going through it in a way uh, where we have to deal with certain passages uh, and going through books of the Bible. So what happens for us is when we get to passages like this, we don't just take the detour, skip them and just say like, well, that doesn't really mean anything to us today. We push right through, we find out and really do the work uh, to say like, what does the Lord want to tell us today? And I'll be honest, uh, this, this series as a teacher has been probably the most challenging series or books that I have taught through. Uh, most Mondays when I read the text, uh, I think to myself, God, I have no idea what I will preach next Sunday. None. Right? And then so that circles around for a couple of days. Our content team meets on Wednesday mornings. They come in with a lot of great thoughts and questions uh, and like pile a bunch of things uh, on the table for us. I still walk away from that thinking, Lord, I have no idea what I'm going to preach on Sunday. And then at some point, he kind of clears a path for us. And I've been really grateful. I'll say this week has been really challenging. You know, the sensei and things, you know. Uh, so today we're going we're gonna to focus on two aspects of this chapter in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, there's different sections, uh, like I said before, there's the altar of incense, there's a census, there's oils for a priest, consecration, there's the laver where they would wash. And a couple of those things we've dealt with in the consecration of the priest before, and we'll actually circle back around in, in Exodus chapter 38, where the Lord is giving instructions now for Moses to tell the people. Uh, and a few chapters later, uh, we'll, they'll recap it as actually what they are doing. So we're going to focus uh, on two aspects of the chapter today, and we're going to circle back around on the labor, especially oils and um, the consecration of the priests in chapter 38. So uh, you've probably heard it said before, or maybe you've experienced this, where a song can take you back to a time and a place where we're not even close to today. Maybe it was the soundtrack of your summer uh, as a teenager, Mary, and maybe uh, it was a song that you heard for the first time at the ocean, and now every time you think of it, you think of the sea. But it's not just our ability to hear that can do this, it's the different senses that God has given us that bring back profound memories. Sometimes you see something and it reminds you of something else or it symbolizes something. But our sense of smell has the ability to do this as well. Some would say, some scientists would say, in even more powerful ways than the rest of our senses combined. You can probably remember like the pungent smell of burning leaves on a crisp fall afternoon, or maybe uh, the aroma of a Thanksgiving turkey roasting in the oven, maybe the leather smell of a brand new baseball glove, or a musty smell in the cabin uh, in the woods, and maybe uh, the scent of, of uh, you know, a rose garden as you walk through, or the perfume or cologne of the person that you love. They all bring back very clear, very vivid memories and feelings and emotions. 
And uh, Discovery actually came out with a study a while back that said that, uh, that the, the sense of smell actually has uh, the, a profound ability to do far more in memory senses than the rest of the senses combined. He says this, uh, when, when you see, hear, touch, or taste something, that sensory information first heads to the thalamus, which acts as your brain's relay station. And then it sends that information to irrelevant brain areas, including the hippocampus, and which is responsible for memory, and the uh, amygdala, which does the emotional processing. But with smells, it's different. It bypasses those things and goes straight to the olfactory bulb. And that is directed, uh, directly connected to, to the amygdala and the hippocampus, which might explain why the smell of something is, can so immediately trigger detailed memory or even intense emotions. They even talk about in this study uh, that our sense, uh, the, there's different uh, glands and different light sensors, and we have maybe uh, four different light sensors for our eyes, and we have thousands of sensory uh, things in the way that we smell things. The Lord has created us in this way to remind us of certain things, and he uses the sense of smell in the tabernacle in profound ways. It was, uh, I, think, I think, in a way, that he would remind Israel over and over and over again as they smell the sense of this incense, that they would be reminded of his goodness, his presence, his faithfulness, and his forgiveness. And in this chapter, he's commanding them to do uh, a lot of things with smells. If there was one smell that Israel's priests could never forget, it was probably the, scent, uh, the smell of burning incense. Their service in the tabernacle was a complete sensory experience. There were things to touch, like the fine linen fabric, cool water. Uh, there was the hairy skins of sacrificial animals. And there were beautiful things to see, bright lights, golden furniture, uh, colorful curtains. There were things to taste, fresh bread, uh, fine wine, juicy meat. There was things pleasing to hear, like the bells on the bottom of the priest's uh, garment. But there are also things that they could smell. Out in the courtyard, they would sell, uh, smell the, the sacrifice of the animals being burnt up and sent out into, uh, the, for the forgiveness of sins. The holy place, they smelled even more fragrant senses, senses of, of sweet, spicy incense rising from the golden altar. There's two altars mentioned in Exodus. One, we have the brazen altar, which would come from the courtyard. And this was where animals would be sacrificed. Blood would be spilled. This would be one scent that would be unmistakable and undeniable. In Exodus chapter 30, God gives instructions for another altar called the altar of incense. And some textual critics say that Exodus 30 is actually a later edit because you have all of the instructions for the furniture in earlier chapters, the, the altar, the brazen altar, the golden lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant even, and then it skips over to the priests and the consecration of the priests, and then it comes back to some furniture inside. And so some textual critics would say, actually, this is a much later edit, um, that someone edited this, they built in the, the brazen altar, the altar of incense, and then they added it back to the text. 
Uh, that seems very unlikely uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, if they were going to edit, they had to stick it somewhere, so why not stick it with the other furniture? That doesn't seem to make sense, right? It, it's, they, were, they were too smart for that. Uh, but I believe that, that the reason is because the purpose for the Lord giving us the altar of incense is a little bit different and interactive than the rest of the furniture. And so we'll see this here in the text as we read 1 through 5, chapter 30. So he says, Now you should make an altar as a place of burning incense, and you shall make it of Acadia wood. And its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit, and it shall be square, and the height shall be two cubits. And its horns shall be on one piece of it, and then you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it, and you should also make two gold rings for it under its molding, and you shall make them on its two sides, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with uh, which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of Acadia wood and overlay them with gold. So the altar isn't very big. Uh, a, a cubit would be the, the size of the altar. It's a square on top. It's about 18 inches by 18 inches, and it stands about three feet Tall. And he tells Moses next where it will go. Notice verse 6. And you shall put the altar in front of the veil and that is near the Ark of the Testimony. So remember the veil was all of these curtains that were sewn together. Some theologians would, would say that the veil was literally three feet in width. It was that thick of a covering. So this altar of incense was placed in front of the veil before the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. This would be the last thing that they would encounter uh, on their way in. He says, place it in front of the atoning cover that is over the Ark of the Testimony where I will meet with you. So it was placed right next to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place where most priests could go into, separated by the place that only the high priest could go into. And this meant that the priests were standing right in front of God. And this was the closest that most priests could come to God and enter into his presence besides the high priest. This is the farthest that they would be allowed to go and live. Notice what he says this altar of incense is for, verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, and he shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron sets the lamps up at twilight, he shall burn incense. And there shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So I believe that the Lord is inviting Israel into a form of worship here. He's inviting them in as he's saying, this is going to be done morning and evening. The first thing when you rise and the last thing before you go to bed. In the morning at twilight and at dusk or at dawn, these will burn continually and continuously before the Lord. He's inviting them to offer something up to him that's sweet and pleasing to him. And although repentance and sacrifices are pleasing to him, it seems as though this bronze altar in the courtyard and the atonement for sins would pave the way for the priest to offer up this pleasing thing to God in the presence of God. They would have to come through sacrifice. They would have to come through confession to a place of worship. And there's this intimate fellowship and dynamic that's happening here, but it has to go through atonement and through repentance for worship. 
And I believe that even though that we're under the new covenant of Christ, there's the same principles that apply to us. There, there must be repentance in our lives to truly worship. To have intimate fellowship with God, it doesn't mean that we're out of the family of God when repentance is held back, but it doesn't mean that we're not his child without repentance, but it does mean that our relationship is significantly stammered when we have unrepentant sin in our lives. To even get to this place of worship that Israel would burn this incense, they had to go through the, the, the altar of sacrifice. I want you to notice just a couple of passages that talk about just the condition of our hearts and the way that God might hear our prayers. One comes from 1 Peter 3, verse 7. He says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as someone who is weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life. Watch this, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Think about the, the significance of this passage where Peter is literally saying the way husbands that you treat your wife will, can have the ability to hinder your prayers, right? It's a heart condition. It's an action that stammers our relationship with God. The passage 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins though, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this, intimacy with God will always come through confession to God. Intimacy with God will always come through confession to God. I think sometimes we wonder why our ability to hear God's voice seems so distant and so difficult. And it may be because we're holding on to sin in our it may be because we haven't come through confession. Notice what the rest of scripture says, just a small sample of this. Proverbs 28, 13, he says this, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Psalm 32, verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you, to the Lord, and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And notice what he says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The Lord invites us to come to him through confession. He invites us to worship through confession. There's an interesting new pilot program in a province of China uh, of Days How, and the motorists, were, can, they can, motorists can receive forgiveness uh, for their moving violations and the fines that accompanied them, uh, provided that they confess on social media. This is a, a pilot program uh, that they're trying out. The catch is that the, most, the post has to get 20 or more likes for the pardon to be official. And they're hoping it spreads out to other parts of the city. And so far, the social network of choice is Weibo, a, a platform, it's kind of like Twitter, I guess, uh, where there's at least 10 different people have posted their confessions of driving mishaps. Many of them reposted by an official account of the uh, Days How police. One driver, especially circumstance, said, I was seized by traffic police uh, when my driving my scooter in the wrong direction at an intersection. I've learned that this was wrong after education by the police officer. I would like to remind all internet users to learn from my lesson and not think that it was okay to commit mistakes when driving a scooter. 
The police representative stressed that this program is only for minor traffic offenses and involving pedestrians. I have no idea what the purpose is behind this. But I think sometimes we believe forgiveness with God comes to us in forms like this, where we have to jump through hoops. We have to do all the things and we have to get 10 likes or 10 posts or we have to say it 10 times or, or like some of us were taught in, in uh, you know, early childhood, like you have to say, you have to say these things. But it doesn't seem like the Lord's forgiveness is based on those things. It seems like the Lord's forgiveness is based on our willingness to bring our sin to him and say, God, I, I don't know what you will do with it. I don't know what you, you can do with this except that you've invited me to bring it to you and you've promised that you will forgive it. You know, that feeling in your heart where you know, you know that's not fair. You know the, the emptiness inside, the brokenness inside and that feeling where you're literally bringing something to God that you know he has to pay for and he willingly takes it. I think that brings us to this intimate place with God. Intimacy with God will always come through confession to God. And so I think there's a significance in what this altar was, where it was, and how it was used. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 34 where it talks about the incenses that were actually used in this. And he says this, And then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself the spices, uh, steak tea, and I don't know, uh, Anicha, Galeba. Jana always says, like, why don't you like research how to say these things before you say these things? Because I'm I'm researching how to preach Exodus 30. That's why. <laughs> Pronunciation is not my game. Spices, uh, pure frankincense, and there will be equal part of each. And you shall make incense from it all and a skillful mixture, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall crush some of it very fine and put it on the front of the testimony in the tent of the meeting where I will meet with you. And that shall be most holy to you. And the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same uh, proportions for yourself. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. And whoever makes anything like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Significant. And, and I would say, just give you a little you know, um, ease of mind here. It's impossible, almost impossible to identify all of these spices today. So to purposefully or accidentally duplicate this recipe, you're probably okay, right? You've probably never accidentally or will never accidentally do this. And I'm not sure that that's the point either. I think that the aspect of this passage wouldn't, uh, you know, push us to think about merely the ingredients or the recipe. But I think the most important thing is that God is holy and whatever he sets apart for himself is holy. And I love the frequency of what's going on here. They would start the day in this way. They would finish the day in this way with worshiping God, with offering this sacrifice or this incense of worship to him. It's what moves us to this incense, what we begin to symbolize for God's people, and that's prayer. Throughout Scripture, what God would move his people to understand through this sending the incense up is that it would come to symbolize prayer. 
Remember that the altar of incense was in the middle of the tabernacle next to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And so in other words, uh, it was at the front of the Ark of the Covenant that separated uh, by a thick curtain. So when a priest would offer the incense uh, on the golden altar, he was approaching the mercy seat and he was coming before the throne of grace, the place where God answered prayers. So the book of Leviticus seems to confirm this when it says that the altar of incense, the altar that is before the Lord. Now, the Bible teacher C.W. Slimming explains it with this analogy. He says, I've sometimes thought that this little piece of furniture standing before the veil was like an electric plug, such as we use to tap electric power laid behind our walls. Behind the veil of the tabernacle was the Shekinah glory of the presence of the Lord. And behind the veil of the sky, there was all the resources of the great triune God. By putting in the plug of prayer with the hand of faith, we're able to tap those resources and find that prayer changes things. Great things happen at the hour of prayer when the incense is being offered. And this would be something that would be understood by God's people in the Old Testament, New Testament, and in the new heaven and new earth. Here's just a sample of the the ways that scripture links incense with prayer. Psalm 141, verse one and two, David says this, Lord, I call upon you, hurry to meet me, listen to my voice when I call to you, and may my prayer be counted as incense before you. The raising of my hands as the evening offering. In Luke chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service, this is the the story uh, where John the Baptist is going to be announced, his father a priest, the service before God of his order and division according to the custom of the priestly office. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in in prayer outside the hour of the incense offering. This was linked prayer and incense, prayer and incense. Watch this in Revelation chapter five, verse eight. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures of the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Watch this which are the prayers of the saints. This would be uniquely and specifically linked, this burning of incense and prayer. So when the spices are thrown on the altar, they would, of course, burn up. They would send a cloud of smoke and to continue to simmer for hours. Not only that, but the smell of these spices would remain in the holy place constantly. This gift from God was symbolic in the way that he wants us to worship through prayer. Continually sending our prayers to him and then everything around us permeated by them. Everything permeated by our prayers. It's as if our prayers would saturate the room, the circumstances, the people, everything around us. It's as if our prayers, like those spices, would soak themselves into the veil. It's as if our prayers would soak themselves into everything around us. We know this. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ. 
I think, you know, for many of us, uh, we think of prayer in this communication form like it was, you know, back in where you had the handpiece and the earpiece and you plugged a little wire in and you said, Thelma, can you get me Andy, you know? And the operator would connect you and there's other people in the lines and it was like this big deal and it was like this massive thing. Someone had to come and you know, connect it and all this kind of stuff. And we did it sparingly because it was so much trouble, right? Maybe if you remember, like we talked about last week, communication is, you remember the rotary dial, you know? You had to go through and all the numbers and all the things. I think in scripture, prayer is more like the way that we text the people that we care about. This ongoing conversation throughout the day where we might just even give a thumbs up or we might say, headed into a meeting. This ongoing, never ceasing prayer where it literally is a conversation that we keep going with the Lord all day long. I think sometimes we, we mistake prayer for this thing that we have to, that we have to uh, just have, you know, this, this time, this lengthy time, maybe this quiet moment, but prayer can happen as we're walking from one room in our office or our house to another. It can literally be a prayer to say, God, help me. I desperately need you right now. It can be in those moments where we look at someone we love and we have that burden in our hearts towards them when we say, God, Would you protect them today? See, Scripture is pushing on us always to continually worship through prayer. Just like this incense was burning day and night, it was constantly filling the holy place, constantly saturating the veil of the temple. See, God has invited his children to pray continually through Christ. The sacrifice that made it possible for Israel to use this sweet altar of prayer was made once a year on the Day of Atonement. However, the connection between prayer and sacrifice was also made continually in more subtle ways every day. One of the more curious things about this passage is that the altar of incense was called an altar. An altar is a place for making sacrifices, but there was never any sacrifices made on the altar of incense. It was only for incense, the special blend that God gave to Moses. So why call it? An altar. The answer is by, I believe, that by calling it an altar, he links this altar of incense with the brazen altar of sacrifice. Both altars were square. Both altars had horns rising up on their corners. There was something similar about their shape. And also they both were used at the same time of day. Remember the priest would offer incense in the morning and at evening. Something else was really important happened at the same time, both morning and evening. Priests were out in the courtyard offering sacrifices to the Lord. These daily religious rituals were synchronized between the two altars. And so this was a place of close connection between them, both in their design and both in their function. So the connection between the two altars serves as this reminder for us that the life of prayer depends on having a sacrifice for sin. Our ability to worship, our ability to pray only comes through Christ's sacrifice for our sin. What secures a place for us before the throne of God's grace is this atoning blood that was shed for our sins. This is why God hears our prayers. This is how God hears our prayers. 
At the brazen altar, Christ died for us, shed his blood, reconciled us to God, and made us forever secure in him. But at the golden altar, he lives in heaven to intercede for those whom he has already died for. The brazen altar speaks of Christ's death. The golden altar speaks of Christ's life, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and interceding on behalf of the saints. Notice what Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 says. The former priests on one hand exited in greater numbers because they were, not they were prevented by death from continuing. They can't continue as priests because they die, Scripture says. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues, continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's also able to save forever those who come to God through him because since he always makes, he always lives to make intercession for them. It's as if Jesus is sitting continuously before the Father making intercession for our prayers. This is why there's a, a church tradition, I believe, that we say many times at the end of our prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' name. I pray this because the, in the name of Jesus, who has promised me to intercede for me, who has promised me that my prayers will be heard. It's only through Jesus. Jesus made this claim himself. This is not one that the church just puts on Jesus. This is not a weight that they put on him and expect him to carry through. Jesus made this claim himself when he knew it was going to get him killed. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the way that our prayers are heard. Back to Exodus 11, we, we push from the incense and what's happening in the prayers and the intercession and as the priests intercede for them and God moves Moses to take a census. And this is a little bit odd, uh, but we're gonna read it and there's different places in scripture that I think you'll remember of something like this happening again. So verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to count them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And when you count them, so that there will be no plague among them when you count them, this is what everyone who is counted shall give. A half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. And everyone who is counted from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall pay no more and the poor shall pay no less. Then the half shekel, when you give the contribution to the Lord to make an atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and give it for service of the tent of meeting so that they may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. A rather confusing section for us and one that we would typically just push through. But there's some tidbits of instructions here that seem almost random. It almost seems like a parent uh, giving instructions to their child before they leave them at home for the first time, doesn't it? Like, do this with the altar of incense. We're going to go to the census. We're going to go back to oils. We're going to go back to the ingredients for the spices. It sounds like, you know... Um, uh, do you know how to work the fire extinguisher? Chew all of your food up completely. Don't answer the door for anyone. Don't wrestle each other while I'm gone, right? Just a bunch of random instructions. But the Lord is too detailed and intentional for this. 
He's pushing them and pushing us in a way that I think if we connect the dots here, we'll learn to trust God even more. To trust him in our prayers and trust him as he leads us. So this instruction requires the Israelites to enter into a census uh, with great caution and under potentially great penalty if they do it wrong. And as best as we can tell, uh, censuses were taken and ordered in the ancient world for two reasons. We really only have two reasons why this was the case. One, for preparation of war, and two, for taxation. They would count them to see if their soldiers were strong enough, were good enough, were numbered enough. And if you remember, Samuel records the moment that David takes a census against God's will so that he can decide if he's able to go to war. God's already commanded them to go to war. God cares nothing about their numbers. He's commanded them to go to war. David's concerned. He wants numbers. And then also, and he pays a great price for it. Actually, a plague befalls on them. There's another great census, if you remember, in Luke chapter 2, where Caesar Augustus declared that all the world should be taxed. Joseph and Mary would go to Bethlehem to be a part of that census and to pay their tax. But here, God is commanding that a census be taken and giving instructions for this time and for others, and it also comes with a tax. First, the census is that God wants, to, uh, God wants and is going to provide Israel with their number and that they are going to know that God knows how many they have. Let me say that again in a better way. God is requiring Israel to take a census. And so they're going to declare their numbers aloud. And so they are going to know their numbers, and they are going to know that God knows their numbers. So in months to come, when God commands Israel to go into war with nations who are larger than them and greater than them, they know that God is commanding this knowing that they are smaller in size, number, training, and ability, and he's still asking them to go. He's asking them to trust him in all of their things. So it would be like this if uh, maybe a coach uh, drafts a room full of rookies, and at the first team meeting he says, hey, raise your hand if you've ever played college brawl before. Nobody raises their hand. Everyone looks around the room and looks for the team leader, the captain, someone who understands the game. And he says, okay, great. Raise your hand if this is your rookie season. You've never played in this league at this level in any way before. And the whole room raises their hand. And the team looks around and they think to themselves, this might be a little bit dangerous. And then his next words are, follow me and we'll win the championship. Follow me and we'll win the championship. See, all of the players in the room understand their limitations now that they've said this. After they've self-declared, no one's played like this before. No one's been here before. No one's done this before. And the coach says, okay, I know that. Now you know that. Now let's get to work. So the Lord is commanding a census, I think, in a way to push Israel to know and understand their limitations that when he pushes them to war, they know and understand they have only prevailed with God's hand. He's pushing them to know what he's capable of. Though Israel is large, they aren't warriors. They're certainly not the largest. And so he's asking them to trust him at every 
word. I think there's a corporate aspect of this also. There's also something that's very personal. When the census was taken, it didn't come in the form of an email uh, or door to door. They literally lined up and crossed over. There's a word here that literally means when it's counted, you have crossed over. So some uh, census were taken in this way, literally at the banks of a river. And as they were counted, they would cross over to the other side as uncounted and counted. By lining up, you were saying, I am in the house of Israel. You were lining up in the census and you would say, basically you would, by lining up, you were declaring yourself a part of God's people. You were saying, though we are God's people, I am God's person. I am being counted with the people of God. By physically lining yourself up and therefore your family, you are saying, I want to be counted with the people of God. I am his child. He is my God. But also there was this tabernacle tax that went with it. There's so much about this that I love. It doesn't really matter if you were rich or you were poor. You paid the same. And it goes all the way through the New Testament to Jesus. If you remember, there's a story where Peter comes to him and says that their temple taxes due. Remember the story? And Jesus tells Peter, oh, okay, go there and pull it out of the fish's mouth and then pay the tax. Do you remember this story? This is the temple tax. This is that same temple tax that Moses is getting the instructions for all the way back in Exodus chapter 30. That tax Hundreds of years later, Jesus honored. And it's fascinating, though, because it's universal. No one was more privileged with the tabernacle than others. No one could say they had greater access because they had funded more of the tabernacle. No one could say or believe that they had greater access to God, forgiveness of sins, the prayers that were being lifted up by the priests. No one could say that they had privilege there because it was an all equal sacrifice. Now, most theologians would put the number of this uh, currency in today's currency probably under $10. But they were all commanded to play a part. It wasn't about the money, it was about inclusion. And it wasn't just about inclusion of access. It was the inclusion and unification around their need. I love this. That everyone needed the tabernacle equally. No one could say, you know what, this year's been a good year. I feel like maybe be like a quarter of a shekel will get me by this time. No one could say, man, this year I made a lot of mistakes. This year I messed up quite a bit. And so I'm gonna double or triple my temple tax. I'm gonna make sure the Lord knows that I've, I'm paying my way, I'm, I'm paying my dues, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can to, to earn or to pay for forgiveness. It, it didn't matter what your year was like, what your life was like. There was this tax, not for the forgiveness of the sins, but for the maintenance and the sacrifices that were done in the temple. See, God was teaching them from an early start that all of us, all of us are equally needy to receive his grace 
and forgiveness. It doesn't matter how terrible your sin was, is, or how frequent Christ died only once. And he had to pay the same penalty for the most righteous among us as for the greatest sinners among us. Equally needy. So as they're saying, I'm in the house of Israel, they're also saying, I'm submitting to the way that Yahweh has required atonement for my sins. I will be obedient. We are his people. He is my God. I want to end our time today with with two questions. I want to end our time today with two questions. Have you been counted? Have you been counted in the people of God? Have you come to a place in your life maybe where you refuse to line up in the kingdom of self? And you come to a place where you say, I want to be counted with the children of God. I am his person. He is my God. Have you been counted? Not by paying a fee, but by accepting the the price that Christ has paid for you. Have you stepped over from death to life, from darkness to light, and said, I am a child of his? Notice Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all of our wrongdoings according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes on us. in All wisdom and insight. First Peter says it this way, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your futile life, futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He paid your price. Have you been counted with those who have said, God, I have nothing to give except what Christ has offered. I have nothing to give except what Christ has offered. If you've never been counted with the people of God, if you've never given your life to God, I would would encourage you, I would beg you to be counted with the people of God. And simply that comes by just literally open-handedly approaching God and say, God, my sins are great. But you've promised that through your son, I can be called a child of God. Today, we've we've got prayer partners in the back. They will take you to the back behind the curtains. We have people who would love to pray with you and show you what it's like to know God in that way, to be counted with the people of God. 
Second question for those of us who, who walk with the Lord and call ourselves children of God. Here's a second question. What does your prayer life smell like? If you could attach a, a smell to your prayer life, like the incense rising in the tabernacle, what would you say? Would you say it smells like dependence? Whatever that is, it smells like someone who is absolutely dependent on God for everything. Does it smell like self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, desperation? Does it smell like forgiveness? And is it constant enough to permeate the things around us? Maybe today God's calling you to a deeper and greater, more frequent prayer life. Maybe today, because of our hurdles through forgiveness and our past, maybe we have trouble really approaching him with boldness, like he promises and invites us that we can. Maybe today is the day where you decide, you know, my prayer life is gonna be, it's gonna be different. We would love to pray with you for Would you pray with me? God, I'm grateful that you have given us these sometimes very difficult texts to push us in ways that maybe we wouldn't push ourselves. To evaluate, Lord, what what is our incense like? What is the prayers that we send up to you? What are those like? Are they constant? Are they sweet to you because we're dependent on you and for you? Do we rely on you and trust you? God, have have we counted ourselves? Have we allowed you to count us as your children? Father, would you speak to us today, maybe in ways that we didn't cover today in the text? Would your spirit do the work that only he can do? Would you change us through through texts like Exodus 3? Jesus, it's in your great name we pray.